0: If you remember in our uh, chiasm of Jacob's life, in the chiasm, usually the center of the chiasm is kind of a a literary structural way of doing a highlight, saying this is the most important part. And the birth of the the children of Jacob is at that part in Jacob's life. And also uh, this... uh, um, the birth of the flocks that Jacob has here is also part of this. So we're kind of at this really dark spot in Jacob's life. He's been here, he's been a slave here for 14 years and Laban's keeping him on. It's, it's and he's wanting to go home, but he's being retained and yet God is prospering him. Exceedingly prosperous is what, is what it ends with. And so I think that that's kind of the, the big takeaway because this is a, a difficult passage uh, to try to make sense out of, but I'll, I'll we'll, we'll do my best, but I just want to point that out. This is a dark spot, and yet God is prospering him in this, in this dark spot, okay. In verse 25, we read, and it came to pass when Rachel, born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Laban send me away, uh, let me go, that I may go to my own place and my country Jacob is desiring his home, his home country, where, he's, where he was born, where he's a, a citizen of. And this isn't merely nostalgia that he's um, emoting here or articulating, but this is his home country by inheritance. This is his home country by the word of God promised to him. And he, he, his desire is to return to this home country. Something that was decreed by God to his father, to his mother, to his grandfather. So this is something that Jacob is uh, desiring. And I think we as Christians can, can uh, feel a similar thing that Jacob is feeling here. Where, where as Christians is our citizenship? What's our home country? Any of the children know? Michigan. <laughs> Michigan, Denver. Anybody else? As Christians, where's our home country? Where's our citizenship? Heaven. Heaven is our home country. That's that is where we desire. We we have a desire for for heaven. Um, uh, this is in the New Testament. We're told that our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, and so when we experience trials or tribulations or these hardships, kind of like like Jacob, the sadness of life, we give thanks for them. God uses those to shape us, but they help us grow. And they also help to orient our desire to something greater, to something that pierces through this veil of tears. And that's heaven. We desire it. We know something has gone awry. We know that something has been amiss ever since Adam and Eve sinned and thrust the world into this curse. And so um, we sometimes have these moments uh, on the opposite end where there's kind of feelings of nostalgia, maybe thinking about Michigan, or uh, feelings of beauty when you see a mountain or something and your there's kind of this inner kind of rapturous moment where you're like wow that is that is beautiful or oh for those of us who are older maybe a a, a song or a scent from when we were younger comes across us and we and we think oh man those are the good old days and we, and we have this feeling of nostalgia it's kind of um, Otherworldly, uh, C.S. Lewis beautifully talks about this in *The Weight of Glory*, and he says, if we were to go back to that moment, we would go back to that our, our childhood room or or that moment. We would realize it wasn't that's not what we were longing for. It was the scent of something greater, which was heaven. And and uh, I highly commend um, that um, essay to you. But we ought to remember, we ought to remember this too. Um, that God is in the business of bringing heaven to earth. Um, you probably tire of me saying this, but this is something that we we miss. We miss in in popular American uh, Christianity. To uh, uh, God's in the business of making um, our home country here on earth. Uh, You know, Jesus teaches us to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has promised the earth to the meek. So like Jacob being promised Canaan, we've been promised uh, the earth as well. It's our inheritance. Um, So uh, we can desire, it's kind of this strange thing. We can desire our home country here on earth, but minus the fall. In this transformational aspect, we desire something that's not our home to become our home. That's what what the redemption of the world, um, that's what God is doing. We can desire that the earth be covered with the knowledge of God as as the waters cover the sea. And in that, that kind of desire for heaven will be met um, incarnationally, we we could say maybe. Um, There's an adage that says some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good but the task of the Christian is to be so heavenly minded that he is of ultimate earthly good. I think that these places are not at odds. Ultimately, they were made for each other. And through Jesus as our head, we are in the business, as his hands and feet, to work the earth, to bring it under his dominion. We are invaders from heaven. We are colonizers from heaven. We are imperialists from heaven. So. We can have this desire for our home country, but our task is to bring our home country here. Taking the earth, our inheritance, back in the name of our king. That's what we do. Making a place which is not our home, our home. Okay, So in verse 25 through 26, um, we see Laban comes to, uh, or or Jacob comes to Laban, and he he says, send me away. Let me go. and he, he says, let, "Let give me my wives and my children. Give me my people and let me go. What, is this, what does this sound like? Anybody Moses. know? This sound, yeah, it sounds like Moses. Very good, Zeke. Very good. This is kind of a proleptic. It's a preview. It's a preview into what Jacob's children are going to experience. It's an Exodus story. We're not at the Exodus yet, but he's, he's under a tyrant like the children of Israel were. A taskmaster. He's a slave, a servant. It's the same word in Hebrew, eved. Um, he's unjust. The tyrant is an unjust, he's an unjust man. And he wants to leave, and the tyrant is reluctant to let him leave, right? Uh, the pharaoh is always like, yeah, go, and then he changes his mind. Yeah, go, he changes his mind. Laban is like, no, you, we want you to stay. We saw this earlier with Rachel. They wanted him to stay. Um, so Laban's doing the same thing. This is a, uh, it's an Exodus story. Um, So we have stories of God's people enslaved under a tyrant, a tyrant reluctant uh, to release them. But in all of these things, God releases his people. God always brings them out. God's in the business of freeing his people from tyranny, from slavery, and bringing them out into something greater. That's a form of salvation we see in in the Old Testament. We see this in the slave laws of Moses. We see Laban not abiding by these. Deuteronomy 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let them go free from you. And when you send him away uh, free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You think if Laban even even decided to let Jacob go, he wouldn't... He would, he would let him go away empty-handed. Do you think he'd give him a lot? you think he would do this? You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. Laban is not a man who's interested in any of this. He's not a man who's interested in freeing him. Certainly not freeing him in the seventh year. He's had him for at least 14 years. Not interested in providing him liberally as he goes away with supplies and blessings. Laban's in the business of extracting and squeezing the life out of Jacob. Getting everything that he can. And the one priority for Laban is Laban. Right? And we can extrapolate this further to sin and the devil and all these things that they, that they represent. Uh, your your sinful enticements. The devil does not have your best interest in mind at all, just like Laban. Okay. So we we have um, this is an Exodus story. We see a similar thing uh, also with Abraham. Abraham in Genesis twelve when he's in um, when he's in Egypt he prospers. Uh, we see in Genesis twenty when Abraham is in Gerar. Uh, With Abimelech, he prospers. When Isaac is in uh, Gerar, he prospers. Um, And also we see the Israelites, they prosper in in Egypt, uh, the children of Jacob. So we have God's people in a foreign land, uh, and they always prosper. God always gives them wealth and increase. Um, Exodus 1.9. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. And Jacob, we see this happening with him. He's having children. He's uh, and then we see in our passage that he's having all the livestock is being providentially given to him. So we have these stories repeated. They're, they're, they're related to each other. They're not uh, always the same. They're general shapes. Sometimes the, f- the figures dif- uh, differ. Uh, the pharaohs and the Abimelechs earlier in Genesis um, s- don't seem to be as bad of guys <laughs> as uh, later uh, Abimelechs and later pharaohs. Um, so that's an interesting kind of uh, Uh, something to meditate on as well but every time God blesses his people gives them wealth gives them children gives them dominion this is the shape of all of history okay Uh, but even here in the patriarchs we see that they're not perpetually impoverished they're not perpetually enslaved they're not perpetually sojourners they become prosperous and free These earthly blessings and freedoms, they signify ultimate salvation in Christ, uh, the salvation of our souls. Uh, But the earthly prosperity and freedom and dominion uh, are no less real for us than they they were for them. God still favors his people. He still prospers them. And he still gives them freedom. So if if your eschatology involves perpetual sojourning, perpetual poverty, perpetual enslavement you might want to revisit the scriptures this is this is zooming in on one part of scripture we may be impoverished we may be enslaved uh, we we may have these things for a time but that's not the way that god works he doesn't throw it up and say here's the ideal always enslaved always wandering like as if the ideal that god wants for you is to become a gypsy that is not what we see in the scriptures. That's not the trajectory we've seen in history either. Um, The the freest and most prosperous countries in the world have been Protestant countries, Christian nations, putting down idols, God God freeing people from the bondage of their sin and prospering them mightily. So we see that right here with Jacob. Hear the prophet Isaiah. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift my hand in an oath to the nations and set up my standard for the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. They shall bow down to you with their face to the earth and lick up the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For they shall not be ashamed who wait for me. God acts on behalf of his people, bringing kings and queens to lick the dust off of our feet. That's a more provocative image, but this is the, this is, this is the prophet Isaiah. This is God speaking through Isaiah what he has planned for his people. And these things will happen, not because of our industry, not because of our free markets, not because of our wits, our entrepreneurialship; These things are good. God uses those things, not because of our constitution and my freedoms. That's that. These things are means that God uses. But what does Jacob, who does Jacob ascribe for his prosperity? In verse 30, Jacob gives the credit for the fruitfulness of his labor, for his prosperity to God. And it's, it's the prosperity that blesses Laban. What does he say? For what you had before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. Remember Jacob talking to Re- Rebecca. Why, why are you getting, or uh, not Rebecca, Rachel. Um, why are you getting angry with me? You know, uh, God's the one who providentially, Gives the fruit of the womb. And he's saying the same thing with Laban. God has prospered you. Um, And also, since my coming, that translation, he says, the Lord has blessed you since my coming. Just the literal phrase there is at my foot. So God has blessed Laban at the foot of Jacob. So even, even when God blesses his people, it's so abundant that it blesses the wicked, like Laban. Deuteronomy 8:17 8, through 18 is a reminder of this reminding the children of Jacob then you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand had have gained me this wealth and you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day interesting the connection there of of power and wealth with the establishment of his covenant. (laughs) Bit heavy handed today with these things, but this is, this is scripture, man. This is, this is it. This is, this is what the word of God says. So Jacob gives God the glory for the increase he's brought to Laban's household. And then Laban, what does he ask? What does he say? What does he want to do? He wants to make a deal with Jacob, right? What shall I give you? When has he asked this before? Yeah, right. At the beginning. Yeah. He uh, he said he asked him his his wages at the beginning. So it's like we're back at the beginning again. And what happens then? Laban deceived Jacob. But the way this is a difficult passage, but the way I would view this, we have a kind of a reset. It's a similar thing. But what's going to happen is that God's going to deceive Laban. I think that's God. God uses Jacob and he deceives Laban here. Because what Jacob does is he sets him up. He makes this agreement with him, which seems to be in favor of Laban. In, in, the, in the Middle East, the, the, the main kinds of sheep that you have are white. Uh, the goats are brown or black. They're not usually speckled or streaked. So he's saying, hey, I'll take, I'll take the minority livestock. I'll take the speckled and streaked ones. Uh, These words speckled and streaked are not used very much in scripture. So the commentaries are kind of all over the place with speculating. Maybe the goats had like white feet and they were black. We don't really know. Um, But the point is, it seems Jacob is putting himself at a disadvantage. And Laban is like, may it be according to your word? He thinks it's a great idea. Right, Laban's gonna just Laban is gonna you know go to the go to the bank with this deal, and so um, it's interesting how he frames it too. He says if the unblemished ones are with me, so the unblemished would be Laban's in this agreement. He says if they're with me, they will be considered stolen. And so uh, what happens is he doesn't get any stolen ones. God providentially intervenes. Even We're not real. Well, God providentially gives him all of the speckled sheep. So it's kind of a way of saying, Jacob has not stolen anything. Nothing that is here is stolen. Um, And what does Jacob appeal to? He says, my righteousness will answer for me. There's a sense in which. Our righteousness doesn't save us. We aren't saved by our own works. The ghost of the late Middle Ages following us. We know this. That's true. But there is a sense. The psalmist says to the Lord, judge me according to my righteousness. There's a sense of righteousness among men, a justice, a doing right. John says, if you do righteousness, you are righteous. So there is a sense in which Jacob is appealing to the integrity of his character. And we're told that he's a righteous man the beginning of Jacob's life. And so I think that what we can see here, another way to frame this, this story, is this is the vindication of Jacob. It says, my righteousness will answer for me. How is it answered? Nothing in his flock is stolen. It's the speckled and in, in, uh, in streaked sheep that are given to him. So let's take a few minutes and look at this deal in, in detail. In verse 32... This is just this is a smaller thing, but it shows the character of Laban. Verse 32, Jacob says, let me pass through all your flock and remove the speckled ones. And then in verse 34, Laban says, let it be according to your word. And immediately, Laban himself goes through the flock and he separates all of them. So he's immediately (laughs) off the bat breaking the agreement. It's not an, an egregious. It's not an egregious like. Uh, breach of the contract, but you see Laban's like, no, let me do it. Let me separate these things. And he does. He gives, he gives the speckled ones to Jacob's sons. Uh, Laban puts a considerable distance between the two, three days. Uh, Perhaps there's some allusion here to uh, the resurrection. Of course, Jesus being raised on the third day, since this is an Exodus story and we're on the precipice of an Exodus and the Exodus does point to Christ's resurrection. This three days nestles in nicely with that whole theme. In verse 32, Jacob makes these rods. This is kind of the most perplexing part of this whole passage. And commentaries are pretty scant on this. It's, it's kind of hard to find thoughts um, on what's going on here. One of the reasons is because some of these words are not repeated very much. The trees are not mentioned in other places. So it's hard to kind of at least import uh, significance beyond God blessing Jacob, of course, in this kind of deal that seemed to put him at a disadvantage. But let's go through uh, the the three trees that are used here. The green poplar, uh, poplar trees only mentioned here. Sometimes, yeah, so we're not able to derive much. The green is kind of a more, it's more of a reference to its moistness or its freshness. You you look at, uh, you know, if if a tree has kind of green in it, it means it's fresh. Um, So, um, poplar in Hebrew is uh, levna, which is similar to levon. Laban means white. Levna is white. So, this poplar tree is a white tree. So there's something going on there, possibly. There's white all over the place in this passage. It's all over. Um, And so there might be something with that. Um, The chestnut trees are another one. Sometimes translations call them plain trees. Uh, They're only ever mentioned again in Ezekiel 31 where they're mentioned among the garden of God. It it talks about Assyria being this this great uh, cedar tree and all the other trees in the garden of Eden are jealous of uh, Assyria, the the cedar tree. So it's a a tree in the garden of Eden. I think that that's the garden of God. That's kind of significant here. And then the almond tree here, the the Hebrew is, is luz, luz if you read it. Um, and this is the name of the city that Jacob renamed as Bethel. Um, so there's an association there. Um, also, does anybody know in the tabernacle or, te- or temple where there's almond trees or symbols of al- almond trees? The, the candlestick lampstands, yeah. The lampstand, which is a form of the tree of life. There's, there's some possible allusions there. We have. And then tree of life, almond tree, lampstands. In Revelation 7, Jesus is among the seven lampstands, the seven almond trees. And and Revelation specifically tells us what are those almond trees? What are those lampstands? What does Revelation say? Anybody remember? They're the seven churches. The, The churches become a tree of life. They're an almond tree. So, surprise, surprise. I think Jacob is another type of Adam here in a kind of renovated garden. He's among animals. The animals are prospering. He's exercising dominion over these things. And then I think that there's this redemptive historical aspect where they're looking at these trees, which, of course, culminate in Christ, who is raised up on a tree for our salvation. And there might be something if we think about the raising up of the serpent in the in the uh, wilderness, a serpent is something that's it's crucified in Christ. But when they look at it, they're saved. There might be something similar here. Jacob is stripping off the barks and he's exposing white. In some ways, we could say he's putting Laban up on the tree. (laughs) If Laban is a serpent, he's putting Laban up on the tree. The sheep are looking at this in a similar way. And unlike the wilderness where they're being saved, they're looking at it and they're being fruitful. And the fruit of their, uh, the, 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 the fruit of their knowing each other all belong to Jacob. They're, they all belong to Jacob. And what we can see is Jacob is God is taking the sheep from Laban, from the serpent, from the tyrant, and he's giving them to the good shepherd. He's removing the sheep from the bad master and giving them to the good master. I think that that's, that's all I got. That's <laughs> but I think there's something to that. I, uh, I didn't see anybody else. I, have, I didn't read any of that. Well, some of that I got a little bit from some people. But I, I, maybe other people have kind of extrapolated some of that. But there's a lot here. Maybe there's nothing. It's an obscure passage. Yeah, so the, the white sheep... So Laban gets the white sheep, yes. gets the speckled sheep, right. right? There's like a type there too where it, um, when, when Jesus is talking about my sheep, here, my boy, the uh, Pharisees are, are basically saying we're the white sheep, we're not speckled. And only those that admit to their sinfulness, to their speckles, get brought into the flock of Jesus. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I, I thought about blemished lambs, but I didn't know. Yeah, that's really good. I'll refer to all of you as speckled sheep in the (laughs) Eucharist (laughs) exhortation. So that's good. Thank you, Caleb. All right. So ultimately, Laban supernaturally gets deceived here. The blessings go entirely to Jacob. Jacob's righteousness answers for him. Jacob is vindicated. He's prosperous in a foreign land. And the stage is set for Jacob to exodus out of Padan Aram to the promised land. And we'll read that next time. So let's pray. We're living in a time where we are sojourners like Jacob. Like Jacob, we are under the rule of Laban's petty, selfish despots. But the Lord is in the business of prospering his oppressed people. He is in the business of freeing his mistreated people. He is the God who loves to vindicate and prosper his people. We are his sheep, and he is the good shepherd. So the charge is this trust the good shepherd know that he sees us that he is for us that he saves us because we belong to him in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace